there was actually a very interesting Harvard Business School study published three or four years ago showing that the cost of hiring or keeping a toxic employee is 2.5 times higher than the benefits of recruiting a superstar. So for all the obsession of getting high-performing, high-potential employees, actually removing or impeding the success of toxic workers has a much higher return on investment. It's too often thought of as the soft stuff, right? It's sort of a secondary consideration when in fact the economics of this issue are substantial. Those are two little snippets of what you're going to experience on today's podcast, where we're going to be looking at the economic case for squashing workplace bullying. And the experts that we have today were identified and invited to this special series by my partner on this series, Lisa Edmondson. And we have Tomas Chamorro Premusic, who is a psychologist and professor and author, as well as Amy C. Edmondson, who is a professor at Harvard Business School and also an author of a number of books. So I can't wait to share their wisdom and this fascinating discussion that we have for you today. Now, my partner, Lisa, is not going to be with us on today's podcast, but tune in for the second half of this conversation where she joins us and she brings her own insights and experiences to that conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Winning the Game of Work a podcast that helps you enjoy the happy and successful career you've dreamed of. Because let's face it, being hardworking and smart just aren't enough in today's competitive workplace. I'm your host, Terry McDougall, an experienced executive coach who will teach you all the right moves so you can win the game of work with ease and confidence. Welcome to another episode of Winning the Game of Work. This is your host, Terry McDougall. And today I have two very special guests. So first we have Dr. Tomas Chamorro Permusic. He's a psychologist, author, and entrepreneur. Dr. Tomas is an international authority in leadership assessment, people analytics, and talent management. He's the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group and professor of business psychology at both University College London and Columbia University. He's the author of 10 books and his latest is titled, love this title, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? Welcome, Dr. Tomas. And also we have with us Dr. Amy C. Edmondson. She is Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. She's done extensive research that examines psychological safety and teaming within and between organizations. And she's interested in how leaders enable the learning and collaboration that are vital to performance in a dynamic environment. She's the author of three books, including her soon to be released, The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. So welcome, Dr. Tomas and Dr. Amy. How are you both today? Great, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I understand you're joining from Brazil. Yes, right now, yes, absolutely. And Amy, I love the title of the new book. It actually took me a few days to get the double meaning, but that's me just being slow. Thank you, great to be here. It's great to have you both. And so I know Lisa is super passionate about identifying the root cause of bullying in the workplace and 
how to fix the toxic workplace. And I was speaking with both of you before I hit record about the fact that I worked for 30 years in the corporate world before becoming a coach. And for pretty much anybody who's worked that long, it's inevitable that at some point we're going to run across a bully or a toxic environment. I'd love to hear from both of you about how prevalent this is and what it's costing the world economy. Amy, you can go first. I think that's really a question for you, Tomas. I tend to not have that kind of macro data. I think you probably have more, but I can say a lot (laughs) and hand it over to you for some better numbers. Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid I don't have specific figures because the closest we get to Terry is looking at the effects of toxic behavior or toxic cultures in the workplace. And it's not so easy to differentiate within the broad category of toxicity between bullying, harassment, counterproductive work behavior, and other acts of antisocial behavior. What we do know is that there was actually a very interesting Harvard Business School study published three or four years ago showing that the cost of hiring or keeping a toxic employee is 2.5 times higher than the cost or the benefits of acquiring or selecting, hiring, recruiting a superstar, right? So for all the obsession of getting high-performing, high-potential employees, actually removing or impeding the success of toxic workers has a much higher return on investment. And then there's all the usual statistics that we've been exposed to in the last 10 years. People join organizations but quit their bosses, Mostly that has to do with working for somebody who has narcissistic, antisocial, psychopathic traits, or is just inept or incompetent. And when this is scaled or generalized at the cultural level or the level of the whole organization, you can expect low levels of morale, low levels of engagement, low levels of productivity, high levels of physical and mental illness. And all of that translates into poor organizational effectiveness. So I think the costs are very, very high. And I think if you have a large organization, you can always expect to see some bad behavior, some problem behavior, some bullying. But if it's a generalized problem, then the main reason for that is usually that it's perpetuated at the level of leadership and culture does not just appear or crop out out of the blue is the result of the values and behaviors of the leadership. And so these problems are best tackled top down rather than by expecting some kind of miraculous bottom-up grassroots movement or revolution that sends leaders to the guillotine as it happened in the French Revolution. (laughs) Although, you know, it could be a good solution at times. (laughs) At times, yes. I would love to build on that because it's clear from what Tomas says, that the magnitude of the problem is large and that it's widespread. And I think it's too often thought of as the soft stuff, right? It's sort of a secondary consideration when in fact, as your question implied, Terry, the economics of this issue are substantial. And just something to dig a little deeper and implicit in what Tomas said is that there is a spectrum from truly toxic bullying often narcissistic personality disorder behavior through to counterproductive, maybe inept, all the way over to sort of just unaware, clueless. 
And I think our remedies have to be different based on that implicit spectrum. There's an awful lot of opportunity to educate the clueless. And I think there's opportunity to have virtually zero tolerance for the out and out toxic bullies. Couldn't agree more. And it's funny, on an earlier episode, we discussed the fact that if somebody has maybe some narcissistic tendencies, which often you find that in leaders, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, that can be coached so that there's an increase in awareness around it and the cost of that kind of behavior to the team. But often what you end up with is toxic narcissism. And I'd love for you to address this. A lot of times what I've seen, and I've experienced this myself, is that it's very apparent to the people reporting to the narcissistic leader that there's something wrong when there's actually abuse going on. But that leader can mask this and often very able to control the view that the leadership above them has of what's going on. And they can sort of cast the situation like, oh, that's just a disgruntled employee or that person's the problem. And a lot of good employees get pushed in front of the bus. And so there's a lot of fallout and damage to the organization before the root of the problem is identified, which is that narcissist. So I'd love for you to address that. Like, how are they able to do that? And why is senior leadership so able to be sort of snowed by these narcissistic leaders? Amy, you looked like you were ready to jump in. So my low narcissism enables me to have sorry, empathy to read your body language. That is true. That is true. And, you know, Tomas and I have written several pieces together. And I just was thinking and smiling to myself how very deeply he's thought about this issue. But I'll just say simply information asymmetry. It's both human and a set of skills that one develops over time to self-present and particularly to self-present up and to be quite casual and not at all worried about what those below you think of you. And there the narcissism steps in and you are just thinking about what you need, what you want, what you need to get done. And that will range from just very direct language, which I think is helpful and good, to just truly sort of inconsiderate, thoughtless, and often completely unrealistic expectations for what others should have maybe already done by yesterday. So I think it's quite easy, and it's probably one of the oldest phenomena in our field to effectively present oneself upward as a decent, effective person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think if you don't do it in America, you're labeled a depressive realist or something like that. Right? So you have to. <laughs> it's obviously, culture, culture does matter, right? I was just speaking to a journalist and she was depressed after we finished talking about the subject. And I said, look, I mean, it's not the same in Argentina, where I'm from, as in Sweden. And it's not the same in Japan as in America. And it's not the same in Germany than in Italy, right? So culture does matter. And some of it is presentation. But I think that ideally, we would educate people on the potential consequences of working for somebody with narcissistic tendencies before they realize that it got to the stage of 
bullying or real toxic counterproductive antisocial behavior because it's very easy to be seduced by the bright side of narcissism we've seen it in politics we're seeing it in politics over and over again when we fall for people who seem entertaining and charismatic and a bit eccentric and their self-promotional overconfidence seems reassuring and it can be mistaken by competence but ideally we should also recognize that if you work for somebody that doesn't listen to you, that doesn't care about you and doesn't empathize and always seeks validation and always talks about themselves and has a distorted sense of worth and is unjustifiably pleased with themselves and is a constant attention seeker, this isn't going to end well. And so, because prevention, I think, is better than mitigation. I mean, I agree with Amy that if you're in the kind of moderately high range, you can expect for self-coaching or coaching or interventions to help you a bit but if this is systematic behavior and habits it should be dealt with before it gets to the instance of bullying yeah i couldn't agree with that more and it's interesting i worked for a canadian company for a long time and and certainly america as a country is probably a little higher on the narcissistic scale than canadians are <laughs> i was in marketing and i often had a little bit of disagreement in terms about how forward we should be with our advertising. Like a lot of times they thought that we were bragging and I was like, you have to stand on your soapbox and scream in America to be heard, okay? This is normal. <laughs> this is normal here. You know, one of the things that came to mind as you were talking to Dr. Tomas is a couple of things that I haven't really seen it as much in the workplace, but just narcissism in relationships, the whole idea of love bombing and gaslighting. And I was thinking about a situation that I had with a boss who I actually saw her from a mile away. I knew her before I worked for her and I saw that she was narcissistic, but she had an opening and she came to me and she wooed me. And I went to work for her thinking that because I saw who she was that I'd be able to manage it. And I ultimately wasn't because she kind of love bombed me on the front end of our relationship as boss and subordinate, but she was true to herself in the end. And it ultimately led to me leaving the organization. So I'd love for you to talk about that whole idea of gaslighting and love bombing, if you use those terms. Not so much, but I think the concept of love is more related to this subject than people think. You know, I'm a recovering psychoanalyst, so as much as I agree that scientifically most of what Freud said has been disproven or can be disproven, there are some ideas that at the conceptual level are still intriguing and somewhat valid to explain things, even if they don't predict much. And I think his view on narcissism is very, very relevant here because at the relationship level, he thought that a healthy degree or manifestation of narcissism is that we replace our self-love through the love of somebody else who loves us back. So, you know, if I can indirectly love myself through loving somebody who loves me back, that's the best case scenario. And on the leadership level, I mean, he thought that this applied to our relationship with leaders and that we fall in love with leaders who promise to love us back. And obviously that also highlights 
a certain immaturity and ambivalence in the cycle. And it explains, of course, the rise of charismatic populist leaders who just promise to fix all of our problems and to make us great and to make us happier, etc., whether they're politicians or bosses. So I think leaders can manipulate us through these fake manifestations or promises of love. And I sometimes worry, I think in the modern world, we expect to have a leader who is a transformational, almost father-like or mother-like figure who loves us and really cares about that. And if the bar is so high, it makes it easier for these impostors or fraudsters to come in and seduce us. And at the end of the day, for most people, a job is a job. And if they are getting something out of it and paying the bills and getting better and proud of what they achieve, they can have a more distant and I think cold relationship with the bosses who can be very competent. And this is Amy's forte without actually engaging in these romantic or love-like kind of dynamics. It's an inevitability that there will be a disappointment. In fact, one of the mysteries to me, especially in the political sphere, is how long the love goes on when it's not being actually reciprocated, when in fact the leader is doing little or nothing for you, how long that sort of affection based on that original exciting narcissistic presentation, how long that can go on, right? That seems to be a mystery. But this builds on something that we've talked about before, which is in praise of the boring leader, right? In fact, if we could get over our addiction to the idea that leaders should be charismatic, heroic, larger than life, we might in fact have better run projects, better run organizations, more distributed learning and thinking and empowering of everyone. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I've been wondering the same thing because at some point it's critical to be able to see what is going on right in front of us. And I think that people do get kind of caught up in this fantasy or this belief that my boss is here for me, my boss wants the best for me, and the best, most talented narcissistic bosses are able to sort of create that gaslighting, make people believe things that actually there's not as much evidence of if you really examine what's going on there. Dr. Tomas, I'd love to touch on something that you brought up, which was it's probably better to avoid hiring these leaders in the first place than to try to mitigate it once they're already in the door. What can organizations do to make sure that they're hiring wisely? So in broad terms, try to focus more on substance and less on style. So when they are hiring people, reduce the incidence or the impact of short-term, intuitive, interpersonal interactions. Try not to decide that somebody is a good candidate because they were very charismatic or showed great culture fit in an interview and really do their due diligence and carefully scrutinize the background, the track record, the credentials of the candidate. If they have managed people before, understanding how those people see the person is a really good indicator of what they're like. Sometimes there are legal boundaries to doing that. You can't use, for example, past 360s of one organization to hire somebody for a new organization, which, by the way, explains the success of sites like Glassdoor that are crowdsourcing leaders' reputation. And increasingly, they're moving broader and broader in their remit and what they cover. Using science-based assessment, you know, if we got organizations to agree that things like empathy, curiosity, intelligence, emotional intelligence, 
self-awareness, humility, and integrity are important, which I think most people would agree in. Understand that these things are better assessed with tools validated by the independent academic community that by intuitive judgments of untrained interviewers. And then, of course, even though I'm a big critic of poorly designed interviews, which is what most people do or carry out, use experts to carry out well-designed structured interviews that actually standardize things and look for critical signs of bright side and dark side traits. That's on the selection side. And then on the internal promotion side, it should be easier because organizations are sitting on a lot of data on what people have done internally. So there again, it's about sort of shifting the criteria, not focusing on whether somebody self-promotes or leans in or has good political capital in a company, but actually look at their past performance, look at peer ratings or upward feedback on what they have done and understand that more often than not, to Amy's points, is being a boring but competent employee that will predict good outcomes compared to being you know, a charismatic entertainer. And I think that's spot on. And I'd add, how have their direct reports done? Are they good performers? Are they people who have contributed to the mission? Are they people whose careers have benefited from working for that person or quite the opposite? And those data are sometimes available, sometimes hard to get, but certainly worthy. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I've observed is that she mentioned poorly designed interviewing techniques that people just kind of wing it. And when I was in the corporate world and when I first was interviewing, I started interviewing people with no training at all. And even as I became a leader, I learned leadership luckily through a mentor that was my boss later on in my career. And then later I hired some coaches to help me along the way also. But it seems that many organizations are hoping that they're going to be able to be successful without necessarily investing in teaching people how to be good leaders and teaching how to identify and hire on good talent. I mean, what can be done about this? Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. I think that still formal training and even experiential opportunities to develop leadership or even managerial potential are very scarce. Most people are thrown into management because paradoxically, actually, they were good at their individual contributor jobs. So because you did well as an individual employee, we are promoting you by giving you these 20 people that you now have to manage and you're going to work it out. And maybe we'll send you on a week course of this or that, but that's about it. And then it doesn't correct itself or get any better afterwards. So I think really invest in skilling and upskilling and provide support and guidance. And I think there is a bit of a healthy trend in this sense to democratize coaching and development to broader levels of the organization. But you have to start by selecting the right people and that actually looking at people who have the potential and the appetite to lead, not because it's an accolade of success and because it means a bigger salary or paycheck or because it's prestigious or for narcissistic motives, but because they're truly interested in making other people better and they're truly capable of making human action, which is what leadership should be. And again, Amy, you please jump in because you have done all the work on teaming. And I think this is really what's at the vortex or the gist of it right here. Couldn't agree more. And 
uh, sometimes I think these discussions are had too divorced from the work, right? The ultimate goal, an organization exists to do the work that provides value for its customers. And what does it take to do that and to do it in a way that makes your organization desirable to customers and competitive against the other alternatives that they face? And, you know, that's where the evidence is findable, right? And that's where the evidence of good management can be found. You can get away with a lot in the short term, but over time, it's hard to get away without good management. Amy, I couldn't agree with you more. It's impossible for businesses to be successful in the long run without good management. So I'm going to wrap it here. And the next episode will be the second half of this conversation. Next time, Lisa Edmondson will be joining us as we address the question, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? And we'll be talking about incompetent women as well. So please tune in. Thanks for listening to Winning the Game of Work. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. If you'd like to get in touch, go to the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. And now get out there and start winning the game of work. I'm cheering you on.